This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Sammy Stewart. Card number 701, Sammy Stewart, pitcher, Cleveland. Okay, Sammy Stewart. This is a player I've not heard of, so I'm looking forward to this. But before we get to Sammy, we have some follow-up on last week's episode about Tommy John. Tommy John started a lot of conversations on Facebook about whether or not he should be in the Hall of Fame. A lot of people, I think, looking at the numbers just said, 288 wins, put him in the Hall of Fame. Also, knowing his name, knowing the surgery, knowing what change that led to in baseball, people were just ready to say, put him in the Hall of Fame. A few people really wanted to have an argument about Tommy's quality (laughs) as a pitcher, the number of strikeouts, the quality of his late career, blah, blah, blah. That said... A lot of very good and well thought out, both defenses as well as attacks on Tommy's Hall of Fame credentials. I don't feel strongly one way or the other, but I do like to have an argument. One thing that did come up in the course of that conversation was a great video. Well, great in terms of entertainment quality, not great in terms of whether or not Tommy John should be in the Hall of Fame. And that is this game in New York where Tommy committed three errors on one play. Tommy fails to cleanly collect a short bouncer to the mound, bobbles it a couple times, then throws it into right field. Dave Winfield has a chance to throw out the runner at home plate. For some reason, Tommy gets in the way and acts as a cutoff man 10 feet from the catcher, catches the ball, turns, and throws it over the catcher's head. It looks like he made the first mistake and then it was all downhill from there. This was in 1988. The runners who he allowed to score were Jim Gantner and Jeffrey Leonard. Hackman. Mm. Hackman and Gumby. So a lot of our favorites, and it, it is clear that this is near the end of Tommy's career. If being 46 years old wasn't enough, I think this play might have done it, but... Good catch, David. Glad that we could add that to the debate over Tommy John's Hall of Fame credentials that should be entered into the record for folks to look at. But now let's get to this week's card, and that is Sammy Stewart. And why are we talking about Sammy today? I was flipping through the big book of 1988 tops, and every time I flip past Sammy Stewart, his card is striking, and his eyes are very striking in this picture, as well as his mustache and his unibrow. When I have noticed Sammy in the past, I've thought, oh, what's that guy's deal? And the first time I looked him up, I said, oh, this this is going to be a sad one. So off the bat, let's say Sammy has a sad story. He has passed away within the last few years. And of these cards, we know they don't all end in the Hall of Fame, but we're going to tell all of the stories. He had some of the highest of highs in his baseball career and some of the lowest of lows in his personal life. Well, this is a show that is about the human condition as portrayed through 792 cards. And so let's get to it. Let's get to the front of 701. And we do see a card that looks like it could come from 
field of dreams to me. This could be a man from the late 1800s. He could be from the 1920s. It's kind of a face that is timeless in baseball. The unibrow, the mustache, the face that Sammy is making here too, just very thoughtful, looking on and gazing onward and being caught in mid-thought, it looks like. So that's a very striking photo. Sammy's look had significantly cleaned up from his early days with the Orioles. I think I'll direct folks just to his picture on Wikipedia. Sammy had this giant, even bushier mustache than this. And his hair just flowed out in a bozo-ish manner from under his hat. I don't know how he kept the hat on his head. And the unibrow even more pronounced in early photos. But as I said, his eyes, I think, in all of his pictures are a striking feature of Sammy Stewart. This almost gray-blue, shimmery, reflective eye is, is something that's very striking to me about all of Sammy's pictures. Definitely. So let's flip to the back of 701, and we have... Sammy Stewart, pitcher, height 6'3", weight 208, right-handed thrower and batter, signed by the Orioles in 1975 as a free agent, born October 28th, 1954, in Asheville, North Carolina, with a home in Framingham, Massachusetts. Asheville, North Carolina, as we've discussed, home of the Asheville tourists. They still owe me royalties because their logo on their hat looks like me. And Asheville is in Buncombe County, located in western North Carolina in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. Asheville is located at the confluence of the French Broad and Swannanoa Rivers. The confluence of those rivers is on the grounds of the Biltmore Estate, which was built by George Vanderbilt and is still owned by his descendants. The Biltmore is the largest privately owned house in the United States. Sammy grew up in Swannanoa, North Carolina, about 15 minutes from Asheville. He became known as the Throwin' Swannanoan, and this was a takeoff of the, of the Throwin' Samoan, a nickname for Jack Thompson, who was the quarterback for Washington State University, and later the Bengals and Buccaneers. The name Swannanoa may have derived from the anglicized Indian name Shanoa or Shawnee, or from a Cherokee word meaning beautiful river. Sammy went to Charles D. Owen High School. The school was named for a prominent textile tycoon. And the Owen family at one time owned the Beacon Manufacturing Company, which was later sold. And then they also opened the Charles D. Owen Manufacturing Company, which was once the largest single unit blanket producer in the world. Hmm. The younger of the two Charles D. Owenses passed away in 2021. Sammy's mother once worked for the Beacon Manufacturing Company, and his father also worked in the textile industry. Other notable folks associated with Owen High School include Cleveland Cavaliers legend Brad Doherty, Buccaneers quarterback and 2003 Super Bowl champ Brad Johnson, and a coaching legend got his start at Owen High, and that's Roy Williams. Roy became the head coach at Owen from 1973 to 1978, starting as a 22-year-old before moving up to North Carolina as an assistant. He then moved on to Kansas and finally back to the Tar Heels, winning three NCAA titles as a head coach along the way. Owen had something called the Dynasty Team, and this was a women's basketball team from 1964 to 1969 that won 90 straight games. They went four full undefeated seasons. The team was so popular that they had to rope off the court to keep the crowds from spilling into the games. So the, the Dynasty Team, along with Roy Williams, are two of the 
well-known basketball associations. Of course, North Carolina, a hotbed of basketball activity. Sammy's family, as I said, worked in the textile industry. Sammy's father, also Samuel, lost an arm working in a factory when Sammy was eight years old. His mother was run over by a train when she was 12. She lost her leg in that accident. It was replaced with a wooden leg, but she still worked in the factory and raised three kids. I mean, this is the David Allen Coe song, right? <laughs> the perfect country music song that I was drunk the day my mama got out of prison. I went to pick her up in the rain, but before I could get to the station in my pickup truck, she got run over by a damned old train. This is a, a lot of country songs. And although there were these sad moments in Sammy's family history and in his childhood, he never blamed that for things that would happen later in his life. He said he had a poor but happy childhood and grew up hunting and, and playing sports and fishing with his dad. He played baseball at Owen High, but wasn't heavily recruited for baseball. He did have scholarship offers for football and was also a very good basketball player at Owen. He went to Montreat Junior College, which was also near his home. At Montreat, he tried his first beer, smoked his first joint, and he was also a really good junior college pitcher. According to Sammy, he led the nation in ERA in 1974. I couldn't find independent confirmation of that, so I will take Sammy at his word on that, but he was clearly being scouted. After that season, he was picked by the Royals in the 28th round, four picks after the Cardinals selected Paul Molitor. Neither Sammy nor Molitor would sign with the teams that drafted them in 1974. Sammy went back for another season, and in June of 1975, he wasn't drafted, but an Orioles scout named Rip Tudor offered him a contract as a free agent. This is one of the best scout names we've had, David. Best names overall. Matt, you found earlier Rip Tudor's actual name was Cephas. Cephas mm -hmm. Rip Tudor. Fantastic. Rip was a scout from 1956 until he passed away in 2004 at the age of 91. He scouted for the Athletics, Yankees, Orioles, Mariners, Angels, Brewers, and finally Atlanta. In 2004, at 91 years old, he had just agreed to a 2005 scouting arrangement with Atlanta. He would have scouted in the 2005 season as a 91, 92-year-old. Just an amazing career as a scout. Rip filed the first scout report on Catfish Hunter. He was credited with signing a lot of guys for the Mariners like Jim Presley, Donnell Nixon, Eric Hansen, and he signed Sammy Stewart. Before Sammy was able to join the Orioles organization, he had his first drug arrest. A marijuana possession arrest, charges were later dropped. When he finally did join the team, he was sent to the Appalachian League for rookie ball, where he went 3-3 three and three with an ERA over 6. He was much improved in Miami at A-level in 1976, finishing 12-8 and eight with a 2.42 ERA in 182 innings. And that also leads to the first fun fact on the card, that Sammy pitched a 7-inning, 1-0 no-hitter for Miami versus Winter Haven, July 20th, 1976. We get into 1977, and Sammy had some big changes in his life. He married his high school sweetheart, Peggy, and he moved up two rungs on the minor league ladder. He was great at double A, and that leads to the other fun fact on the card, which was that he had a 9-6 and six record and led the Southern League with a 2.08 ERA in 1977. He then had less success at triple A. He got moved up to Rochester, and... 
would take some time to get successful there. He was 0-5 with a 6.33 ERA that first year. He was assigned to AAA for a second season in 1978, and this time he had more success, winning 13 games with a 3.8 ERA that second season, and that earned him a late-season call-up to Baltimore. Yeah, he got his first start on September 1st, 1978 at Memorial Stadium, facing the White Sox, and we have video of his appearance. And that's because... Sammy set a record in his first appearance. He got through the first inning unscathed, despite a leadoff single, an error, and a wild pitch. The Orioles scored four in the bottom of the first inning, and then Sammy struck out the side in the second, again in the third, and then got the first batter to strike out in the fourth inning, which set a major league record for most strikeouts in a row in a debut. That record remains but was tied in 2010 by Steven Strasburg in his debut. Sammy and the Orioles won that game 9-3. to Mike Squires broke up the streak with a pop-up. And we have some local news footage talking about this, this record, which is always fun to see 70s local news footage. They win it 9-3, but watch now. Sammy Stewart coming up. He just was called up yesterday from Rochester, set the new Major League record. Here it is. Here's the first strikeout. There's the second one, the third one. That was the second inning. Now comes the third inning, another one. There's two. And I'll tell you, this guy was firing him three. And then in the fourth, the leadoff batter also strikes out seven consecutive. The crowd knew he set a new major league record, beating the old one set by uh, a six, Carl Spooner of the old Brooklyn Dodgers in 54 and Pete Rickard of the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers in 62. So what a thrill for the 23-year-old just being called up to set a new major league record. Elsewhere tonight, Oakland lost, New York Yankees lost, as well as the Milwaukee Brewers. So we pick up a little bit of ground, although it uh, may be a little bit too, too late. So the line on the card that first year, only two games and only 11 innings pitched, but 11 strikeouts. So very good first taste of action for Sammy Stewart. In 1979, the Orioles had a set rotation with Mike Flanagan, Jim Palmer, Scott McGregor, Dennis Martinez, and Steve Stone. Those guys made all but five of the Orioles' starts. So Sammy was mostly a reliever. He did have three starts and won all three of them. Overall, an 8-5 record in 1979 with a 3.51 ERA on the year and 118 innings in relief. The Orioles won their division, beat Brian Downing and the Angels in the ALCS. Sammy didn't appear in that ALCS. We've talked a lot about this World Series matchup from the Pittsburgh side of things, but Sammy and the Orioles also had a very good team, along with the solid starters. Eddie Murray and Ken Singleton had great years at the plate and the Orioles won 102 games. Sammy got a chance to pitch in Game 4 of the World Series at Three Rivers Stadium. He came in in the second inning in relief of Dennis Martinez, already down 3-0 with a man on second. He allowed the base runner to score, but didn't give up an earned run in two and two-thirds innings of work. He stopped the bleeding and allowed the Orioles to get back into the game, which they ultimately won 9-6. But as we've talked about, this was the We Are Family Pirates year, not the... Orioles year. 1980 on the card looks like a repeat of 1979. Very similar ERA and innings pitched. He finished 20 games this year, twice as many in 1979. 1981 was the strike-shortened year. The Orioles were unlucky. They finished second place in their division. They were two games behind the division leader in both halves of that season. Again, the winner of each half of the season is who would end up making the playoffs. And Sammy was also pretty unlucky this year. 
his games and innings pitched were in line with his previous years, but there should be some black ink on this card. He got ripped off by the Topps Corporation due to some fuzzy math. On baseball reference, Sammy Stewart is the 1981 American League ERA champ. On this card, it says 2.33 ERA, but it was actually 2.32. He was the ERA champ, although he only started three games. He pitched enough innings to qualify for the title because you needed one inning pitched per game played by your team. The Orioles played 105 games. Sammy pitched 112 innings. So he qualifies for the ERA title. There's a whole Sabre article about how this ERA title was decided. Sammy finished with an ERA of 2.323 in 112 and one-third innings pitched. Finishing just behind him was Steve McCaddy of the Oakland A's, whose ERA was 2.326 in 185 and two-thirds innings. In 1981, when they were determining these ERA titles, they rounded off the innings. So McNatty got his runs divided by one-third inning more, and Sammy got mm. his ERA determined by one-third inning less. So they rounded Sammy up to 2.33, rounded Steve McCaddy down to 2.32. So on his card, he does not get that precious black ink of the ERA champ. In his Sabre bio, it credits Dave Rigetti as the ERA champ. So he's twice a man scorned here. Rigetti mm. pitched 105 innings and his team played 107 games. So he didn't even qualify for the title because he didn't pitch an inning per game. So that rounding rule and this fuzzy math messed with Sammy's stats on his card. But I'm glad that Baseball Reference and our friends over there have updated their stats and give Sammy that ERA title that he deserves. Very good 2.32 ERA, 157 ERA+. plus. So a really good season for Sammy. He was worth 3.3 wins above replacement as a relief pitcher. So a really good year. I've actually talked about this situation on my other podcasts about long decimals called Truncation Nation. <laughs> and I think it's really a mathematical crime that's been, that's been committed against Sammy. I'm glad that we're able to rectify here. In 1982, Sammy wanted a chance to start regularly, but the Orioles kind of liked where they had him, thought it was he was too valuable as a reliever to move. And his teammate, starter Mike Flanagan, said he comes to the park prepared to pitch seven innings every night. It can be a thankless job. And yeah, it kind of it kept going. He, he made 12 starts that year, so more than in years previous. But seven of them were between May 1st and June 2nd. Really, the rest of the year he spent in the bullpen. He was regularly throwing in losing situations, expected to pitch five innings and keep the O's in the game after the starter had kind of laid an egg in the first few innings. And over time, he seemed kind of frustrated with this situation. He said, I like long relief, but I never know what's ahead. You look at the starters, they know what's ahead. They know when they're going to pitch and in what town and to what batters. Me, they just tell me, Sammy, you might be in there tonight. Sammy did express that he wanted to throw 200 plus innings and start 40 games. He was popular with his teammates and with fans. He had this wild mane of hair, big bushy mustache, and was a real character. There's a video of Sammy and Rick Dempsey in the middle of a rain delay doing some acting. Sammy's on the mound as Jim Palmer wearing some pantyhose over his pants. Rick Dempsey is dressed up as Robin Yount. 
and they're having a grand old time. Sammy was popular in the clubhouse and his teammates really enjoyed his presence on the team and he was a big part of this team. He did spend some time on the disabled list with bone chips, which led to some performance issues. He finished with a 10-9 and record and a 4.14 ERA. In 1982, he pitched in the next-to-last game of the season. Sammy came into a 3-3 game and pitched five-plus scoreless innings, where the Orioles came back to win. They pull into a tie with the Brewers for first place. And then the next game was the final game of the season, one that we discussed in the Don Sutton episode, Don Sutton versus Jim Palmer, where Don Sutton gets the win to win the AL East for the Brewers, and ultimately a disappointing end to that year for the Orioles. So David, it's the 1983 Orioles. Do you hear that sound? Something magic happens every time you go. You make the magic happen, the magic of Orioles baseball, when the game is close, and the yokes are hot, there's a thundering roar from 34, to give it all they've got, and you never know, who's gonna hear the call, every game does a different start. David, it's the magic of Orioles baseball. This was the peak for the Orioles, and Sammy played a big role, eating up a career-high 144 innings. He only got one start, so almost all of those innings were in relief. Went 9-4 and four with seven saves, a 3.62 ERA. He also had some legal and substance abuse troubles in 1983. He was arrested on July 8th for erratic driving. He was given a fine and 18 months probation for drunk driving. His manager, Earl Weaver, said that he would work with Sammy. Earl, of course, himself had multiple DUIs. I'm not sure how seriously the team took this issue. Sammy also said that was his last scotch and water. He admitted he had a problem and said he needed help. But this would not be Sammy's last brush with substance abuse or with the law. The Orioles won the AL East by six games to take on the White Sox in the ALCS. And there's an iconic picture of Sammy here in the locker room after the Orioles won the division. You have, looks like it could be Rick Dempsey, pouring a bottle of champagne, trying to pour the bottle on Sammy Stewart. But Sammy not only has a poncho over top of his uniform, he also has an umbrella keeping the champagne off of him. Got a good mustache, very good shot. Staying dry in more ways than one in the locker room. Good idea, Sammy. Sammy was called into action of game one of the ALCS down two to one. Runners on second and third and Pudge at the plate. Sammy struck out Carlton Fisk to keep the deficit at one run. In the eighth, he gave up a single and a walk and was replaced. But that game ended two to one to the White Sox. He was called upon again in game three with the Orioles up six to one. He pitched four innings of one hit ball and got a four inning save in what ended up being an 11 to one victory that put the series at two to one, put the Orioles within one game of the World Series. 
they won game four the next night to move on to play the Phillies in the World Series. And the Orioles won the World Series in five games. Sammy appeared in games one, three, and four. The Orioles lost at game one, but in games three and four, Sammy was a huge part of the series win. He threw four and a third of those scoreless innings, getting a hold in both of those games. And those wins put the Orioles up three games to one. Altogether, Sammy threw five shutout innings, giving up only two hits and striking out six. And he was the runner-up to to Rick Dempsey for World Series MVP. I've seen at least one writer argue that Sammy should have won it, should have been the World Series MVP for his late-inning performances in Games 3 and 4. But Sammy and the O's were world champs. As I recently pointed out to an Oriole fan friend, of course, this was the last time that they won it all. And yet, Tony La Russa is still somehow managing the Chicago White Sox after all these years. <laughs> 39 years later. Some things never change. <laughs> some things never change. The following season, 1984, was a rough one for the Orioles, as we have discussed. They, ha- they finished just over 500, fifth place in the AL East. Sammy was sharing closer duties with Tippy Martinez. He pitched in 68 games, securing 13 saves, which was his career high. He had a 7-4 and record that year with a 3.29 ERA, a 118 ERA plus, so better than average in the league, still very effective, even if the O's overall were pretty disappointing. In 1985, the mediocrity continued for the Orioles. Sammy had a typical year. Nine saves, 3.61 ERA, and 129 innings. He was just really a a bullpen innings eater. In December of 1985, the Red Sox were looking to strengthen their bullpen, and they traded Jackie Gutierrez to acquire Sammy. And Sammy moves to Framingham, Massachusetts, which is where he has listed his home on the back of this baseball card. Early in that year, he went to a local store. The owner said, you're not from around here. And he said, I'm from North Carolina. I'm just here to play for the Red Sox. The owner of the store says, oh, don't worry, you'll blow it. So clearly some some optimism going into the 1986 season. Sammy says, no, 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 we're going to be good. We're going to be pretty good this year. Sammy had a positive attitude and the guy just repeats to him, don't worry, you'll blow it. And Sammy said after game six, he had to go back into that store and look that store owner in the eye every time knowing Mm. they had blown it. Sammy and Peggy bought a big house in Framingham, Massachusetts. They had two kids at this point, and both of their kids suffered from cystic fibrosis, so they had to have a lot of hospital visits in Boston. Sammy would continue to stay in Massachusetts after he retired. He was used much less in 1986 than he had been used in Baltimore. Only 27 games in 1986, 63 innings, which was his lowest total since that initial 1978 call-up. He had an injury which kept him out of the lineup from June 8th to July 27th. He also got on John McNamara's bad side. Sammy says that this stems from an incident where he missed a team bus. He said he was visiting his son in the hospital. He came to the stadium, threw his bag on the bus, and was parking his car as the bus pulled away. Whatever happened here, Sammy had multiple incidents where he got into arguments with McNamara and other members of Boston's management. From his return from injury on July 27th through the end of the season, he pitched in only 17 games and had a 6.27 ERA. So perhaps that poor performance might have had something to do with his lack of usage. He gave up 26 earned runs in 37 innings, but by the time the playoffs came around, Sammy thought that he could help the Red Sox win. 
he never got a chance. Yeah, he didn't appear in the playoffs or the World Series. And he he said afterwards, if they let me pitch, we would have won that series. I've never been scored on in the postseason. My arm was feeling good, but the Red Sox lost the series and Sammy was let go after the season. And he remained without a team past opening day of 1987 until June 4th when Cleveland offered him a contract. He was later ruled to have been among the players victimized by the owner's collusion to limit salaries among free agents and other players that were without teams. He received a settlement in 1994 of $322,000 for this action. He ended up pitching 11 innings at AAA to kind of get back in in the swing of things, but it didn't really work. (laughs) He had an ERA over nine, but Cleveland called him up anyways. He ends up pitching in 25 games and had a 5.67 ERA, and he was let go at the end of the season. So closing the book on Sammy Stewart in the majors, 10 seasons, a war of 10, 111 ERA plus, a record of 59 and 48, a 3.59 ERA with 45 saves, one World Series ring and almost MVP. Overall in the postseason, six games, 12 innings, eight strikeouts, and zero earned runs. How about in retirement? Sammy's life after baseball was tough. He had those two children with his wife, Peggy, both of whom suffered from cystic fibrosis. His son, Colin, who Sammy had been visiting in the hospital when he missed that bus, died in 1991 at the age of 11. His daughter, Alicia, had to have a double lung transplant. And we will come back to her story later on. Sammy and his family initially settled in the Boston area and he started using cocaine and later crack cocaine. He said he was at a party. He saw some women step into a bathroom. They came out, in his words, moving funny. He asked what they were doing, and they introduced him to crack. Sammy said he had never used cocaine when he was in the majors, but when he smoked crack, he said the high was euphoric. It took away the absence of baseball. It made me feel like the big dog again and the center of attention. He fell into a life of drugs, He had earned an estimated $3 million playing baseball, and he blew it all. He ended up selling his World Series ring. He sold his father's antique gun collection. He was arrested more times than we can count, charged 46 times with more than 60 offenses. All the while, his relationships and his life were falling apart. His daughter, Alicia, said Sammy used her illness to get sympathy and money He even told someone that she had died to convince them to help him out with a little bit of money to buy crack. Sammy didn't blame Colin's death or Alicia's illness for his drug problem. And while he was using, his wife also developed a drinking problem. Sammy moved the family from Massachusetts back to North Carolina, but he couldn't kick his addiction. He said, I'm a crack addict, a drug addict. I can't explain to you how bad it feels to be walking down Tunnel Road with no home and no money. People look at you and say, that's Sammy Stewart. He used to be a famous ball player. There were domestic incidents, bouts of homelessness, panhandling, and many, many arrests. When I was looking at Sammy's high school, I was looking at his high school hall of fame. At the top of that list, you have Brad Johnson, you have Roy Williams. Sammy Stewart was a a successful athlete. He was removed. His name had been on the baseball field. A new principal came in, and because of Sammy's legal difficulties, he took Sammy's name off the field and they didn't want that association. By 2006, his wife and daughter had pretty much given up on him. He was a habitual felon. 
And since 1988, he had been in prison five times at that point. Often his arrests were for drug possession. But we should also be honest here. It wasn't just drug possession. Sammy did some bad things. He was arrested for kidnapping and assaulting his first wife in 1990. Later, it was drug and weapons possession, larceny, driving while intoxicated, passing bad checks, resisting arrest. In 2006, he was arrested again, this time for having $12 worth of crack cocaine. He was sentenced to 80 to 105 months in North Carolina state correctional system because he was a habitual felon. Sammy said, I had it all and now I have nothing. I'm a 51-year-old man in jail and begging for another chance. All my stuff is gone, all my material things. I don't have a house. I don't have clothes or memorabilia. I have nothing. Sammy had been a big music fan. He had a music collection that included 4,000 records. All of them were gone. He served six years and eight months in jail. And while he was there, he wrote an apology letter to Orioles fans. He tried to reconnect with some of his teammates. And when he was released in January 2013, he tried to rebuild his life. He would coach young players for $25 a lesson, sometimes would travel to Baltimore or Boston for team reunions, and appeared on the Orioles pregame show with his old battery mate, Rick Dempsey. And you can see it in his face when you watch this video, how excited Sammy is to be there and how gregarious and funny and fun he was. He reestablished a relationship with his daughter. And sadly, Alicia passed away in 2016 at age 33 after a lifelong battle with cystic fibrosis. Sammy also had two younger sons with another woman. He remarried a woman named Sherry. In March of 2018, Sammy had been missing for a week. No one had seen him. Police were called to a residence, and they found Sammy dead in his bed. In the months prior, Sammy had been arrested for trespassing and had a head injury from an altercation. The autopsy confirmed that he died from hypertension and cardiovascular disease. They found no traces of drugs in his system, some presence of alcohol. So Sammy Stewart was dead at the age of 63. It's hard to know how to put this into context because it's a tragic story. So much that happened in those 30 years since he left the majors and just a uh, a horrific ride fueled by drugs. So David, now learning this story, what are we supposed to make of it? Sammy was larger than life. Rick Dempsey said there was never a better character. Sammy should have been a comedian, not a ball player. Everyone loved him. Jim Palmer said he was a lovable guy and a terrific pitcher, but he was a lost soul. And Jim Palmer said he was a con man. And I think part of being a con man is that you you gain people's confidence and people like you and people want to help you. Sammy was incredibly likable and you can see it come through in these videos, both as a prankster, jokester on the field, and then later kind of talking with his old teammates. But when he left the game, he just didn't know what to do with himself. And I think we see that with a lot of these guys. They either stay in the game Few of them just ride off into the sunset and do nothing. Maybe the Kevin Elster track. Sammy just descended into a life of drugs. And he said, there's a lot of times I wished I would have died because I was pathetic. But parents whose kids got instruction from Sammy said he was one of those people that got kicked so many times in life and just got back up. This is a guy who had ruined his own life. And yet people still wanted to send their kids to him to learn about baseball and they trusted their kids with him. Sammy said that he would listen to the blues when he would lose. 
his wife would ask, why do you listen to the blues? And Sammy said, because there's always somebody who's got it worse than me. And Sammy's story and Sammy's face just made me think of a lot of people that I see day to day and people that I know. Like, this is a guy I know. This is a guy that we see in our neighborhoods. We see on the L. And it's so easy to just kind of dismiss that and forget that this is a public health problem and just think that this is a flawed individual. And Sammy had his flaws. But this was a fun-loving person whose life was ruined. And I'm kind of glad that he got that few years back where he was able to to try to rebuild. A lot of people don't get a shot at redemption of any kind uh, or a chance to to have a different phase of their life. And it does sound like Sammy was able to have some of that before he passed. And overall, just a very complicated story and one that we've seen multiple times in this series of what addictions can do to people. So a very complicated story and a powerful one. And thank you for, for sharing that. And thank you to you at home for listening to it. If you've ever written the perfect country and Western song, we would love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.